I want to invite you this morning uh, to think with me about the metaphor of a vista point. I want you to consider something like that vista point, that high mountain top, as, as a sort of advantage point after a season of struggle and trial in reaching for some great accomplishment. Because it's often those seasons where we have gone through great difficulty, where we've gone through adversity, where it feels like we've gone through meandering paths which we're really needing nowhere specific at all, that we are able to pause for a moment and look back at the unfolding of providence which lies behind us and begin to discern the ways and the hand of the Lord upon us. It's often in those moments when we accomplish something significant. Perhaps it's graduating from college. It's entering into an, a relationship. It's, a, it's, a, it's the accomplishment of a great goal. And it took a long time to get there. And it wasn't easy to arrive. That as we look and as we pause and as we reflect and as we think back over what happens, we're able to to draw all of this into our sights and learn lessons. And in view of those lessons, learn to give thanks to the Lord. That's what seems to be going on here in verse 18. Paul has reached something of a, a vista point. He has arrived at the end of his second missionary journey. And as he tread the windy paths from Corinth down to the seaside in Sancreia, where he jumped upon a ship, he took time to think. He took time to be on that vista point, that panoramic place where he could look back behind him over a windy trail that led from southern Galatia all the way down to Sancreia. And he could see that God had been with him every step of the way. And he could see that God had led him through all kinds of hardships, sorrows, frustrations, and bitter disappointments, finally into a season of tremendously fruitful ministry. And because of all that, we see here something that feels peculiar in our text. In Sancreia, he had to cut his hair. We read phrases like that in reading the Bible often, and we say, what in the world is that in there for? Why would I need to know this morning that at a little place called Sancreia, that Paul cut his hair? What does that teach me this morning? Because often, uh, obviously this morning, we didn't come here thinking about haircuts. And what we learn here is the reason for him taking the haircut as he was keeping a vow. So a lot of people, when they hear about the connection of ideas here of having the haircut and the vow, they immediately seize upon that Nazarite vow from the Old Testament where the person who took it wasn't supposed to cut their hair and they weren't supposed to drink any great thing at all, whether it was fermented or unfermented, and a whole list of other things. But the problem is, you look at our text this morning, the details are so few and so scant that it's really not easy to come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow here, nor would it make any sense. So what is it that is going on here? What is it we're supposed to draw from this seemingly obscure testimony that Paul cut his hair for he had taken a vow? 
And one commentator draws it into focus so that we can begin to lay our hands on it when he says this, that the cutting of the hair was a means of expressing thanksgiving and seeking continued blessing of the Lord on his mission. I think that's the right way to take it. We have examples of vows being taken of the Old Testament where people took a vow simply because they wanted to memorialize a moment in time and give thanks to the Lord for mercies received, for providential blessings provided, and for the ongoing blessing upon the things that they have committed themselves to. And it seems to me that's precisely what you have here as Paul wraps up this great mission, as he boards that ship uh, from Sancreia to Syria to go back home to Antioch, to the church that had sent him on this great mission. He's pausing at this point of panorama and he is learning the lessons as he sees providence which is unfolded behind him. And in view of that, he draws out things For gratitude, he draws out thanksgiving because he's seen God's hand upon him. And so it seems to me appropriate as we wrap up our exposition of this fairly lengthy episode of uh, this second missionary journey, that we take time to reflect upon some of the events there to understand why it is that Paul is pausing, what it is that he is learning, and what he is giving thanks for. And we do that this morning so that we will learn to take from this a duty for ourselves, which is that we ought to, at these precious, pivotal moments in life, pause in moments of reflection upon the Lord's ways and dealings with us, that we may learn its lessons and that we may learn to draw forth gratitude and return thanks to the Lord. So let's divide this into four quick parts. What is Paul thinking of and what is he thankful for? And I'm going to suggest he's thinking of and thankful for co-labors, divine guidance, divine preservation, and fruitful ministry. So let's dig into our text at what's near to hand when we consider thankfulness for co-laborers. And one reason why I start near at hand and one reason why I would argue gratitude for co-laborers is here is because Luke tells us who is accompanying him on this journey, Priscilla and Aquila. Now you'll remember what's peculiar about Aquila and Priscilla is he met them when uh, he was all alone. He met them in Corinth when he was all alone. You'll remember, if you think back to Acts 17.50, as Paul is is, uh, snuck out of the city in the middle of the night in Berea because of rioters and uh, protesters and rebels against the kingdom of God, that he has to leave Silas and Timothy behind him. So that means he's alone now. And especially after this little contingent of brothers leaves him off in Athens, he's all by himself. So he preaches for a little bit in Athens, and he decides that really what he wants to do is go to Corinth. And so he arrives in Corinth, as we've already seen the beginning of our chapter, and he arrives alone. There's no church there. There's no family there. There are no co-laborers there. There are no evangelists there. There's no Christians there. There's Paul. And so we see here in the Word of God, as we pointed out before in verse 2, that the very first thing he did was went on a search mission. We're told he found Aquila. We told you when we saw that word found, we said that word implies a search for something that is lost or a search for something that you believe is there. You just don't know where it's located. 
So it speaks of a kind of intentionality. When he came to Corinth and he was all alone, the very first thing he did was seek. And the Lord provided. Because the very next thing that we learn is he found Aquila and he found him because God's providence had been good to him. Before you learn that Aquila was married, before you learn that he was a tent maker, before you learn that Paul stayed with him, before you learned that he became a co-laborer with him in mission, you learned this. Recently, he had come from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Remember that? You see, by the hand of God, riots had erupted in the streets of Rome over a man named Crestus, as the Roman historian Suetonius tells us. There was rioting in the streets of Rome over Jesus Christ. And here he is, this Jew. We don't know whether he was a believer in Christ or whether he was curious about him. It makes no difference to us. God sovereignly stirred in the hearts of the Roman pagan emperor Claudius to boot all of the Jews out of Rome so that when Paul arrived alone in Corinth, this man and his wife would be there. And by providence, Paul is led to them And what he is led to is what he calls them later in Romans 16, co-laborers in Christ. Yes, they shared a vocation together, but what Paul describes them then is not mere tent makers or workers with leather. What Paul describes them as, as co-laborers in Christ. They were co-laborers in gospel work. They were co-laborers in that which had a gospel orientation to it. And the fact that that was on his mind as he looks at these dear brothers and sister there as they hop upon this boat in Sincrea is what you learn in verse 19. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. You see, they were the kind of people you could entrust with important work. And by the way, that's what you're going to find out they did do while they were there. They cultivated the Ephesian field for mission. You see that in the way they dealt with this fellow named Apollos, which we'll speak about next time. Later on, we'll find out that they hosted a church in their home, even as late as the writing of 1 Corinthians. Apollos can tell uh, the church there, as he's writing from Ephesus, that uh, Aquila and Priscilla greet them, and they have a church in their house. They were co-laborers. And one of the things that Paul is struck by as he concludes this second missionary journey, as he wraps up the mission in Corinth, as he sets sail for home, God has been good to him. God has given him people when he was alone. And mind you, as he thought about them at the end of his journey, as he thought about the divine provision of co-labors at the end of his journey, he must have been thinking how that fit with the beginning of his journey. 
Because as you go back into Acts 15 and you see the history of the beginnings of the second missionary journey, you'll remember that it began with an argument and separation. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark and Paul said, no, he's a traitor to the mission. Barnabas and Ham words over it, kept on insisting. And Paul said, uh, the word of God says that they had such a sharp disagreement, they separated. And the scene is ugly because the word uh, sharp disagreement means they argued to the point of exasperation. Spitballs were flying out of their mouths in heated debate. And they left, they split, they divided. And so here's Paul at the outset of his mission. Is he going to be alone? And the Word of God tells us that the hand of the Lord had supplied him a man named Silas. And this is what we know about Silas before this mission started. That he's from the Jerusalem area, or at least most recently, and he was regarded by the brothers in Jerusalem as a leading man. And the word means commendable. We learned that he was a man who was full of the Spirit of God, and he could minister the Word of God in such a way that he was unto the blessing and the edification of those who heard him. That's what 1532 tells you. That's what you know about him. But what Paul came to find out about Silas is that he was a dutiful and reliable co-worker. When the Apostle Paul had stripes laid on his back in Philippi, who was there to receive it with them? Silas, when he was thrown in the depths in the inner bowels of a dark prison in Philippi, who was chained to him? Silas, when he was sitting there in the middle of night at midnight, singing psalms of lament to God out of concern of the situation, whose voice was singing those psalms with him? But Silas. You see, one of the things that Paul learned was not just that he was a commendable man or he was a gifted man, but that he was a dutiful man. So the beginning of his journey was in loneliness and God provided a co-worker. The end of his journey in Corinth was in loneliness and God provided a co-worker. As he takes this vow in Sincrea and cuts his hair as it reflects from this vista point about the terrain of unfolded providence behind him with all of its meandering and mysterious paths wandered, of all of its frustration and at times apparent failure, one of the things that he could see as he looked back upon it is God had been good to him. He had given him friends. What he learned was that in spite of all of its difficulties and sorrows and hardships and persecution, the one thing that he knew is he wasn't alone. God had provided him with co-workers. As Paul takes measure of God's ways and working in his life, he remembered God had been good. He had put people into his lives. You know, people of God, one of the verses in the Bible that stands out to me as one of the most striking statements of God about man, it comes from the earliest pages of Scripture in Genesis 2. It said, not good. 
Mind you, that is a powerful statement because every time you see the word good in Hebrew text before that into Genesis chapter 2, all you read is good, 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 good. And so you come across that, not, it's like stubbing your toe in the dark. Not good. What wasn't good? It's not good for man to be alone. So he said, I'll make him somebody who's similar to be his help. God made our life to be a social one and a communal one, not a life of isolation. One thing that is uh, uh, significant about God's ways of dealing with us and His people is that He would not have us be alone. He would have us be in community. And so Paul looks at all that and he sees what God has done with him after the separation from Barnabas and all the way through his meandering trip to the conclusion of Corinthians when he came into the city heartless and feeble and all alone. One of the things that he discerned was that God had been good to him. He had provided him with people. People of God, this morning, I want you to think about God's providence in your life. And as you take measure of all the things that He has given you, along with all of the sorrows and difficulties, I want you to think this morning, what ought to be on the top of the things which you prize and you give thanks to the Lord for, is He didn't leave you alone. You look at the people in your life. I am always struck by this when I see it. And you may be too. You see these images of horrific destruction in the wake of a great storm. Tornadoes rip through a whole city and leave all the trailer park on its head, right? You see trees wrapped around bulldozers. You see hurricanes and floods. You see the worst of devastation. And what you hear when somebody eventually gets before somebody with a microphone and puts it before them with a camera, they say, how are you doing? And virtually, time after time, what you get is, these things mean nothing. I'm grateful to be alive and have my family. We become very sour in life because it's hard. Maybe your home isn't great. Maybe your marriage isn't great. Maybe your children aren't what they want to be. Maybe your family relationships aren't the best. Maybe you've got all kinds of complaints this morning. But one thing you can say in the midst of it is God has been good. He hasn't left you alone. Who is around you this morning? I'll guarantee you they're imperfect. I'll guarantee you there's a lot that needs to be fixed about them. But you're not alone. It's not good for you to be alone. Paul discerned that. He he had been alone. And yet what he saw from this vista point was that God didn't leave him that way. I want you to think about that and let it settle into your mind this morning. Be thankful for what you do have and who has been given to you. Well, they need a lot more correction. God will take care of that. But you're not alone. Paul learned the lesson that God provides co-workers, co-laborers, and servants to come alongside. The second thing that he was giving thanks for was divine guidance. And uh, it comes in a most interesting and ironic fashion. Because I would have you note here, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment a bit more, but it does come in the most ironic fashion and connection because you can see here from verse 18 that he's setting sail to Syria from the seaport of Sancreia. And where does he end up? Ephesus. 
And you say, that sounds like alphabet geography soup. But there's a wonderful story in it. And it's all based upon God's guidance. Oh, we know the story of guidance. Uh, I'll get to it. Just let that thought settle, ruminate upon it a moment. Headed to Syria from Sincrea and stops at Ephesus. To you, it sounds like a bunch of details. But hold on. Think about Corinth, which is near. Think about the guidance received in Corinth. You'll remember that Saul or Paul had been preaching and it seemed to have been quite effective. We're told that the synagogue leader believed in his house. Many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, believed and were baptized, which tells us this morning, people of God, that Paul's mission in Corinth was beginning to be successful as he preached the word. But because the Jews had already been agitating, because they had already been beating the bushes and making threatening sounds, it would appear that Paul was ready to give up. It would appear that Paul had had enough. It would appear that Paul was concerned for his life. It would appear that Paul was thinking that just around the corner, once you hear the pitchforks from the crowd and the loud noises, what comes next is stripes on your back, in jail, or having to leave town. And it's at that moment you're told in the Word of God that the Lord came to him in a vision. And we went over this very thoroughly a couple weeks back. My point here is not to expound on that at any great depth. But it is to say this, that in this moment when the Apostle Paul believed that it was time to pack up his bags and go, God came to him and said, you persevere right here. God came to him and said, don't uh, be afraid any longer. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Remember we said that that word be silent means that Paul had stopped preaching. which tells us he had one foot outside the city limits. And here God says, you be bold and you speak. And he said, and what was key to it all, I have many people in this city. And so Paul continued on in mission. And as you see in verse 11, he remained there a year and six months teaching the Word of God. But what I'm after here is not just that Paul received guidance at that moment. Paul received new guidance. He received new guidance. And I, I want you to put this into perspective now as, as we uh, rewind the highlight reel of the second missionary journey that Luke gives us. Because here's what he was thinking before he received the new guidance. In Philippi, he preached the word for a bit. It looked good. Then he got thrown in jail and beaten. Thessalonica, he preached the word for a little bit. It looked good, and people were coming to Christ, and they ran him out of town. In Berea, he went and preached the word. They were more noble than the people in Thessalonica, the word of God tells us. And yet, unbelieving Jews stirred up crowds against him, and he had to leave in the middle of the night. When he went to Athens to preach the word of God, he toured the city. He saw the idols. The spirit was vexed. He preached the word before the Areopagus council, and they said, Who's this hayseed? And he left. So what do you imagine Paul was thinking as he sat there in Corinth? He sees the crowds armed with the pitchforks, the loud, boisterous voices, the rising up against him. And what did he believe? It was time to go. Just as he had been going 
before that. But all of a sudden, here God comes and He stands right in the way, and the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in all of His authority and power, stands before Paul and says, You stay. Guidance. You preach. Guidance. I'll protect you. And the Lord prospered His ministry. That was the result of it all. You see that in verse 18. He had remained there many days longer. Then he took his leave. That's interesting to us. That's the back end of Paul's journey. That's the end of the second missionary journey. God came to him, and God gave him very specific guidance. And it was game-changing guidance. Reminds us of something else, though. That just as the back end of Paul's journey, the far end of it, has a scene of guidance, so it began with divine guidance. Remember that this second missionary journey began as he went back to the southern Galatian churches which he had built, dropped off the decrees from the Council of Jerusalem, and uh, he said, now folks, it's time to do something. Let's break some ground. And the Word of God tells you in Acts 16.6 that he tried to set out for Asia which contained this uh, city in your text in verse 19, Ephesus. See, the very first city that Paul wanted to go to on his missionary journey, the second one was Ephesus. And you know what the Word of God says? That the Holy Spirit forbid him, which means hindered and refrained. It's powerful. So he wanted to go west, and the Spirit says, go north. And when he got north, he wanted to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit, again, we are told, forbid him and restrained him. And now said, go west. And then he goes to Troas. And of course, you'll remember there, as he's in Troas, he receives that famous Macedonian vision. Once again, divine revelation. And here is that man from Macedon imploring with all of his verbal and physical gestures, seeking to persuade intensely, come, bring the gospel of Christ. So here he is at the outset of his missionary journey, and he's got this vision on the front end. He had wanted to go to Ephesus. Now he has no idea where he's going until he gets to Troas, after the Spirit of God has led him in ways that he found exasperating, feeling like he was going through the wilderness wanderings all over again. And yet to receive this very concrete direction to go to Macedonia. And from there on out, he went through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. You've got to believe the Apostle Paul as he is stepping foot aboard this ship in Sancreia, headed for Syria, making a pit stop in where? Ephesus. That had to feel a little bit ironic. You see, uh, the first place he determined to go to was the last place that God took him. But he did get him there. And he could say that happened... He could say that very honestly it happened because God guided him. You say, what do we make of that this morning, Pastor? That's very interesting. I'll try to remember that. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? 
He wanted to go west and was forced to go north. When he wanted to go north even further, he was forced to go west. Then he receives a vision, and that vision leads him through the most troubled waters you can imagine. Only to the end, get that journey, in the last stop, is he given direction that he's going to the first place that he intended to go to on his way home. The Lord does move in mysterious ways, and we should appreciate that. There's something more to learn, though. What he is impressed by as he stands on this vista point looking at the unfolded ground of providence behind him and sees the meandering and wandering paths that God has led him through. Number one, he knows that every single step of the way, God has guided him. And that's something that we doubt. You doubt it. I doubt it. We all doubt it. How many days of your life when you are engaged in the most mundane activities or when you are going through the most harrowing circumstances have you ever asked yourself, where is the hand of God in all of this? Because it doesn't seem to be present at all. And just because God didn't come to you in a special vision doesn't mean His hand hasn't directed every single one of your steps. So the first thing that you draw from all of this is that wherever you are in life this morning is exactly where God has intended you to be. It is exactly where God has guided you to be. But let me bring up something that's more frustrating than that. Which is that you may know exactly where you want to go in life. You may know who you want to be. You may even think you know how to get there. You may even believe that receiving or achieving that thing which you believe is the right thing for you in life is within your grasp and somehow it slipped out of your hands. Has that ever happened to you? You knew where you wanted to go. You knew what you wanted to be. And right when it was in your clutches, God took it. That happened to Paul. And there's something I began to appreciate as I studied over this text is what Luke wasn't highlighting, but now seems to be drawn out here in this picture of reflection and learning and gratitude is that Paul grew up as a man and as a pastor on this trip. He grew up in many ways. See, this new guidance that he received here changed everything for him, I believe. Because before this, we have a series of testimonies as in and out, in and out, in and out, meet opposition and flee town. And yet when he receives, when he received that same kind of treatment in Corinth, God comes to him and says, No, no more. Stand here. Hold your ground. I think that had to have happened because when Paul actually does go to Ephesus and he preaches the word there, and it went very well from all circumstances, they asked him if he could stay longer, and he said no, and then he said, I'll return if God wills. He's learned something now. This apostle has learned something. 
He has begun to learn through all of the meandering and wandering what felt purpose and aimless and frustrating when it felt like God was taking from His very hands the things where it can reach. Paul has begun to wait now patiently on the Lord. And now when he has in his sights the thing that he first set out to do, one thing that he has learned at the end of all this mission is that unless the Lord wills, I won't have it. He's learned to wait upon the Lord. He's learned to wait upon the timing of the Lord. He has learned to wait on the direction of the Lord. He has learned to trust God. This morning, people of God, there is a lesson for us because, by the way, by the time he does make it back to Ephesus, which you're going to read about in chapter 19, was the longest field of ministry that Paul ever had recorded in the New Testament. And it was a flourishing, thriving ministry to the point that we learn that all of Asia heard the Word of God. So when the time was right to bring him back to that mission field, he could finally go to where he believed God was directing him. And it was years later. But when he got there, to the right place, at the right time, he would be the right man for it. That's our lesson this morning. When it's God's time. When it's God's time. When it's God's time, that place that you believe you're supposed to be going, that door will be opened. When it's God's time, when you have gone through enough suffering and trial and difficulty and learning so that your character has been reformed and renewed and changed, He'll lead you there. When the situation itself has been prepared and cultivated and the Lord has had time to work, He will take you there. But you know, people of God, that's a hard lesson for us to learn in life. It's hard for us when we believe that we are being directed in the right way and it feels like it's in our grasp and God says, not now. That doesn't mean not never. It just means that we're going to have to wait until the Lord readies us. So what do we do while we're waiting? What do you do while you're waiting? It seems to me the answer is to do what Paul did. He grew as a man. He grew as a Christian. He grew as a believer. He cultivated grace. He grew more in godliness until finally he was prepared to take on what God had prepared for him. That's for us this morning, people. That's for you. God doesn't always promise to give you exactly what it is that your heart's desiring. When you desire it, it takes time. It takes time for God to open the door. It takes time for you to be prepared. It takes time for the circumstances to be right. And so what this teaches us is we must learn to wait upon the Lord. 
You see, if we can agree to what we've just learned in our text, which is the mystery and marvel of God's providence to lead Paul in South Galatia against his inclination, which is to go west and to take him north, and then when his inclination says, well, let's go north, God says, go west, and then to lead him over to Troas, which is west, and then this meandering trip through Macedonia all the way down to Corinth, only to want to leave when the situation start looking like it's good, to learn the lesson he has to keep planted to do the work of God and learn to trust in Him in the midst of hardship, if we can agree to all those details, if we understand those are all under the divine direction of God, then you can believe this morning that He's guiding your life and that He is uh, maybe placing His hand upon you now to say, wait. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't trust. It means God's preparing the way for you. And God is preparing you for the way. As Paul stood on this vista point here, he learned something. God had been guiding him. And that guidance had been for his good, to teach him he can trust the Lord to guide. But secondly, he learned that God was using that time to prepare him in order that he might be made ready for the greatest field of ministry yet. That's for you this morning. Be thankful for divine guidance. The next lesson I believe that he was thankful for was preservation. I take that from the language of verse 18. Having remained many days longer. It doesn't say after he was dead. It doesn't say after he was battered, bloodied, and bruised. It doesn't say after he got out of jail in Corinth. This is having remained many days longer, having ministered many days longer, after God promised him he would be with him. He had learned preservation from that immediate context, but thinking through the lens of that, he was able to see previous preservation. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All of those circumstances of deep frustration, all of those circumstances of him feeling like God's hand wasn't protecting him, all of the pain that he endured, the sufferings that he went through, the hopes dashed, the fears that reigned large in his mind, those were understood now in a new way through the promise which he actually did experience as being fulfilled. Jesus Christ said to him, No man will attack you in order to harm you. It didn't mean there wouldn't be difficulty. There was. A large crowd rose up against him. They tried to get him in trouble with the magistrate. But those were verbal charges. No one laid a hand on him. The promise was fulfilled. God had not only guided him, God had preserved him. It's got to be why, verse 11, immediately after the vision, you are told he settled there a year and six months teaching the Word of God. And it's got to be why, verse 18, our text, begins with a reminder of that, having remained there many days longer. These are not accidental This is the evidence of a careful literary structure to highlight what is significant for us. 
God's word hadn't failed. And so as he hopped on that boat and he sailed for home, as he stood on that panoramic point, he was able to see something up close. He was able to filter his experiences through this grid. He was able to reach conclusions. He was able to see that something had happened in his life. He had grown. People of God, he had learned to trust the Lord. That's the great lesson I take away from this here in verse 18. As he cuts his hair to take this vow, as he thinks about God's providential blessings upon him, he had learned, he had learned through this journey to trust God. I'm not saying he didn't trust him before. He's just at a whole new level now. Why? Because he had seen it happen. He had learned to trust in the promise, and he seemed kind of giddy, didn't he? He had learned that if you open your mouth for the sake of Jesus, you get it slapped. You get lashes on your back. You get thrown in jail. People hate you. Your life becomes miserable. You have to always keep a suitcase full just in case it's time to leave town in the middle of night. It took God coming to him with all of his authority, all of his majesty and saying, wait, I will be with you. You see, Paul had to learn in his understanding. He had to learn to trust the hand of the Lord through difficulty. That tells us this morning, people of God, that's how it is for all of us. You do not come into the Christian life Packaged up with trust in God through hard times. You don't. In fact, this is exactly why Jesus warns disciples in the Gospels uh, to watch out for people who make easy professions of faith because as soon as hardship or difficulty comes in the name of Christ, people have a tendency to flee. That's why he says, before you take out this cross, count up its costs. Because we don't come packaged to do this. One of the hardest things it is to do in the Christian life is to learn to trust the Lord after your salvation that He'll take care of you. And oh, how many times do we see people kick against that because it feels like it's not happening. We all know it's the right thing to say. God will take care of you. How many times do we say that to people in the midst of their difficulties? Oh, don't worry. God will take care of you. Yeah, right. Why don't we change places? Why don't you sit here on this hospital bed before the surgeon sticks his scalp on your heart? Why don't you sit in my place where my bank account is empty and I don't know how to pay my bills anymore? Why don't you take on my marriage with all of its conflicts and difficulties? Why don't you take care of my kids that don't ever seem to listen and behave? Why don't you do my job where my boss is always yelling at me and I can't get along with anybody even though I'm trying to be a good Christian at work? Because it's always easy for us to say to other people, don't worry, God, God will take care of that. And you hear that and you say, I don't even know if he's watching. It's a hard lesson to learn. There's a great difference between pious-sounding talk that we speak about on sunshiny days 
and living it out in the eye of the storm. People of God, Paul took Paul, God took Paul through the eye of the storm in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, and even in Corinth. And then he put his feet there and said, I'm going to nail them to the ground so that you learn in the midst of this to trust me. You're going to need it. You're going to need it when you go stand before the august throne of Caesar one day. You're going to need this. You're going to need it when everybody that is a partner in ministry has abandoned you. The saddest things to read in Paul's letters is at the end of 2 Timothy to say, everyone's abandoned me and I'm here alone in my chains. It's hard to trust, to learn to trust the Lord. And so what would we take from all this? Well, I think what we take from this is that every single opportunity of difficulty in your life is precisely the time for you to seize seeking to trust God. And you're going to fail a lot at it, believe me. You're going to fail a lot. Your life's going to get hard and you're going to want to start squirming and running. You're going to feel like the difficulty is a straitjacket and you feel like you're ripping it off with all of your might. And somebody speaks of these words in your ears, trust the Lord, it's the last thing you want to do. And that's why, people of God, we need to see what God did here to Paul and how He trained him. He sent him through the fires of difficulty, each time likely taking away a bit more of the lesson, but still it was not easy. This man, before he came to Christ, actually had luxury in his life. He said he had advanced beyond all of his countrymen. He was a person that wherever he walked into the room uh, around Jews was exalted. And now what is he? But a blabbering apostle getting his back whipped and thrown into jail because he dared to preach Christ. It wasn't easy to learn this. He had to go through a lot of seasons of difficulty. But as he stood on that boat, one of the reasons why he knew he cut his hair for that vow of thankfulness is because he had learned God had been training him in every little step of the way. And that's what you're to learn this morning. Is your life miserable right now? Are you, are you experiencing difficulty? Be honest with yourself. Have you said to yourself recently, I wish God had never led me to this place? Whatever it is in your life. I wish he'd never brought me to this. If you haven't said that, you're not being honest. But that place is exactly where God has ordained you to be. And it's exactly that place, in the midst of all of its difficulties and turbulence, that you need to take whatever faith you have and say, I'm going to start learning. You won't learn all your lessons there at that spot today or the next six weeks. It'll be gradual. God builds us that way slowly over time <laughs> so that we don't get any credit for it. It's pretty obvious after time that we didn't do this because every time we do this, we feel how feeble we are and weak at it. But one thing I do think we discern, we can draw out from this history lesson of providence here and see Paul reflect on it, learn from it, and give thanks for it. 
is that little by little, as you lay hold of God with the trust that you have available to you, not very much, and you try those promises, you'll find that they're reliable. He will deliver you. He will strengthen you. He will provide for you. Those aren't easy words, I know it. But they're true. Paul gave thanks for divine preservation. Finally, Paul gave thanks for fruitful ministry. What must have loomed large in his thinking as he wrapped up this trip was he'd endured a lot of failure. I remind you this morning, people of God, that everything that Paul endured right up through even the early stages of the Corinthian mission looked like failure. He'd failed in Philippi. He'd failed in Thessalonica. He'd failed in Berea. He'd failed in Athens. And he felt like he was failing in Corinth. But then he saw a change. When he trusted in the Lord's promise, he laid hold of his strength. He labored away in the Word. <laughs> he had a fruitful ministry. He settled there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them, and that Corinthian church grew. Something else he learned when Silas and Timothy came to him after a season of separation, I'll bet you one of the things they reported to him is that everything he thought had failed hadn't failed. And we get the sense of that by reading the letters that refer to those churches later on, that they are abounding, they're growing, they're believing, they're increasing, they're being established. It wasn't all failure, even though it looked like it had been. And what he began to see here was that the Lord had been blessing him in all of his, uh, in all of his working and laboring, even though sometimes it didn't look like it. And what he gives thanks for here as he leaves Corinth is a thriving ministry. What he gives thanks for here in Corinth at the end of the second missionary journey is that there are thriving, living, breathing church plants all across Macedonia that didn't exist before a year and a half before. That's remarkable. It all looked like a failure. And yet, God in His providence had caused it to be fruitful. That tells us this morning, people of God, we're not to judge our labors by their initial fruit. Don't judge your labors by their initial fruit. Your marriage will not be on its first day or first year what it will be after 25 years of you praying for it. You will not be a parent, uh, the parent on day one or the first year that you will be 20 years later after you have worked through all of your failures as a parent and you've pled God for mercy and forgiveness for all the screw-ups you've made and asked for Him to help you become a wiser, better parent. You will not be in your vocation from day one what you will be after you seek the Lord's help and guidance and sharpen your tools and skills and ability over the course of years. Don't judge whether God is blessing you and what you're doing by what it looks like right away. I know we have a, a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to, to take up something new and it isn't flourishing. We start, we think it must be the wrong thing. Sometimes we take up something and we persevere in it and it looks like it's just not lifting off the ground. We think, we must be failing. God isn't blessing. And so we become bitter in disappointment. It's often the case. You know why? Because God wants us to feel that way. So that we'll learn to stop. We'll learn to pray. 
We'll learn to hear God's voice and to learn the lessons that He would have us to learn. So that over time, as we trust in Him, as we commit our life to Him, and through prayer and study and thinking and getting the Lord's help and guidance and wisdom for others, finally we'll be able to be what we should be. And the Lord will bless that. But Paul did the very same thing. He prayed and he persisted and God caused the increase. And so as he set sail for Syria to go back to the churches there to report to the Antioch church all that God had done, he was able to go to them and tell them a great story. God had blessed the labors for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so what he did here was get a haircut to take a vow to praise the Lord. What do you learn from all this this morning, people of God? You're not Paul. You weren't on the second missionary journey. These are great stories. But what does it mean to you? What do you take from it? I trust that we've heard some lessons that are valuable to us this morning about thankfulness to God for putting people in our lives who are not alone. I trust we're thankful this morning to consider that God is always guiding our steps, even though sometimes to us it doesn't feel like He's anywhere near us. I trust we're thankful and grateful this morning to hear the truth that God preserves His people even in the midst of their sufferings. I trust this morning that we enjoy knowing that if we should persist in our labors, prayerfully seeking the Lord's blessing upon them, they'll be fruitful, at least according to the measure He has willed. I trust all those are truths that you like to hear this morning. We don't always hear them. Not every text is set up for it. What is it you're supposed to learn, though? How do you learn the lessons that Paul did? How do you take this away so that it becomes something that you integrate into how you approach life? I was thinking about that because I thought to myself, it's not exactly the easiest lesson to draw from this text. It feels somewhat obscure. The details seem to be a little bit strange. As you piece it all together, it's undoubted what Paul has done here. He has paused to reflect upon God's hand that has been upon him. And he has learned lessons, and he's giving thanks for these themes that we have drawn drawn out here. But how do you do that? How is it that you do that yourself? And then I reminded that trusty catechism question and answer I'd learned from my youth. What dost thou understand by the providence of God? Question and answer, you should learn and master yourself. What dost thou understand by the providence of God? Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number 27, that the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by His hand, He upholds and governs all things in heaven and earth. Did you hear that? This is the beginning of making this yours. This is taking the doctrine of divine providence and making very practical application for you. And the beginning of the practical application to be the lesson learner and the thanks giver that Paul was is to start with the power of God. The almighty, everywhere present power of God. Whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and He governs all things. And it goes on to say that herbs of grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by 
His fatherly hand. How do you learn lessons as you stand on the vista points of life to take measure of the unfolded ground of providence behind you? You do it by beginning with the right theology. The Almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by His hand, He upholds and He governs all things, so that nothing comes by chance, but by your fatherly hand. Which means for us this morning that whatever is in your life is by no accident. Which means that it has been decreed and designed by God. And there's something good and there's something for you to learn. There's something for you to know. There's something new to acknowledge. And there's something to give thanks for. How do you become a thanksgiving Christian here like Paul was still feels the wounds on his back from being beaten for Christ. But he's a thanksgiving Christian. He cut his hair. He had taken a vow to give thanks. Because he understood that everything he had endured was because of the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand, he brought all things upon him. People of God, look at your life. Stand on the vista point. Look at your life. Where has God been leading you? Who is God making you into be? How has He been preserving you? Do you have any good in your life this morning? Do you have any shred of blessing? Learn from it. Acknowledge it. Do what Paul did. Give thanks for it. Because of what he learned. It was due to the Almighty. Everywhere. Present power of God. Whereby as it were by his hand. He upheld him. And he governed him. And he led all good things to come upon him. Not by chance. But by his fatherly hand. Father, this morning... Deliver us from being grumbling, unthankful, rebellious Christians, kicking against providences, scorning and ridiculing days of difficulty because we want something better. Lord, teach us to know that it's through the furnace of fire and affliction that you raise us up. It's through difficulty that you make us strong. It's by making us know our weaknesses that we learn to trust you. So, Father, this morning... As we see here, uh, the testimony of Paul's haircut remind us of what it stands for. It stands for lessons learned in living for you. The battles may be difficult, the days may be long, the hardships may feel heavy, but they're all from you. And they're there because uh, you would have us to learn to trust you. You would have us to learn from you. You would have us to learn to give thanks to you. For all mercies received. So help us, O oh Lord, as we take measure of these things to cultivate the same attitude of the Apostle, to learn from them, and to be thanksgiving Christians as he was, knowing that the reason why we have all of these things is your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us for his sake. Amen.